0: Good evening everyone and welcome. Thank you very much for coming this evening. My name's Michael Willis. I'm the fellow in Moroccan and Mediterranean Studies here at the Middle East Centre at St Anthony's. And it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening's event. We're very fortunate to have not just a double bill but also a triple bill tonight, so you're particularly fortunate. A double bill in the fact that it's not just panel discussion, it's also a launch of a new book, and it's a triple bill in the sense we don't have just one speaker or two speakers, but we actually have three speakers. So we're both greedy and fortunate this evening, so yes. We are here to mark the publication and discuss the findings of what I regard as a very important new book on North Africa, women and social change in North Africa. It really is an excellent book that I recommend. And indeed, some guy called Willis on the back of it says, this is a remarkable volume that brings together and showcases some of the best research currently being done on both women and social change in contemporary North Africa. The variety of both subjects and approaches encompassed provides a strikingly rich picture of a region, it will be of great interest to the scholars of gender, religion and social change in the broader Middle East. It covers a whole range of subjects in a remarkable amount of detail, all relating to gender and social change in North Africa. I will leave our speakers to fully explain to you the origins, content and conclusions of the book. But I was very pleased to have been peripherally involved in the project in the early stages of the development In that context, I would like to warmly thank the British Council in Morocco, particularly the director, John Mitchell, for generously supporting the workshop that ultimately produced this book. As we will hear, the overall project sought to bring together researchers and scholars from both the UK and North Africa. And I'm delighted to say that Oxford and St. Anthony's were very well represented at both the workshop and the book. Dr. Iman Sharar, who's with us this evening... She presented at the workshop and contributed a chapter to the book, is a research associate and former departmental lecturer at the Department of International Development here in Oxford. Megan O'Donnell, who presented at the workshop and contributed a chapter to the book, was then a student on the MPhil in modern Middle Eastern studies here. Laurence Deschamps-Laporte, who presented at the workshop and contributed a chapter to the book, was a DPhil student here. Derta Engelke who contributed a chapter of the book, was a DPhil student here at Oxford. Anna Jacobs, who presented at the workshop, was then a student on the MPhil and Modern Middle Eastern Studies. And Dr Katia gervan Elliott, who helped organise the workshop, did both the MPhil and Modern Middle Eastern Studies and the DPhil here at St Anthony's. That probably is quite enough of the institutional self-congratulation for now. But I I hope my point is made. We're very, very pleased to have Oxford so involved with, with a project such as this. So tonight I want to introduce you to three of the contributors to both the workshop and the book. Dr Nadia Sunveld teaches at the Institute for Law, Governance and Society at Leiden University in the Netherlands. She is a specialist on gender and law in the Muslim world and her previous books include Quill Divorce in Egypt, Public Debates, Judicial Practices in Everyday Life and also Women Judges in the Muslim World, a Comparative Study of Discourse and Practice, uh, which she co-edited. Dr Doris Gray who is the Associate Professor of Gender Studies at Al-Aqouin University in Morocco and the former director of the Hillary Clinton Centre for Women's Empowerment there. She's a former distinguished journalist and foreign correspondent in Africa. Doris's books include Beyond Feminism and Islamism, Gender and Equality in North Africa, and Muslim Women on the Move, Moroccan Women and French Women of Moroccan origin Speak. Dr as i've already mentioned is a research associate here at the department of international development associated with the refugee studies uh, program and she was also a departmental lecturer here between 2012 and 2017 uh, her research focused on a range of topics related to institutional transformations in developing countries, legal reforms and changes in social norms, most notably those relating to gender and women's rights. And she has researched extensively on Morocco and is currently involved in a project looking at Uganda, so looks at South-South issues across the board. Doris and Nadia, as the editors of the volume, will speak first to explain some of the background about the project, and then Iman will give us a flavour of the contributions from her contribution to to the book. But please join me and give me a warm welcome to our three speakers for this evening. Thank you. Doris.
1: Good evening, everybody, and thank you for inviting us, for having us here this evening. So what I thought I would do is talk a little bit about the genesis of the book, and my view is particular to the grad students, so you have some idea what awaits you as you embark on future publications. (laughs) The workshop that we organized in 2015 was titled Gender, Law and Social Change in North Africa. And the goal was to bring together Western scholars and North African scholars. And to also bring together junior scholars or emerging scholars and more senior scholars. This was, as it turned out, a rather idealistic and ultimately challenging project. So what I'd like to maybe mention is the challenges involved in true cross-cultural scholarly collaboration. Moroccan scholars in general get promoted based on seniority, not on their research output or their teaching evaluations. Culturally, there is great emphasis on respect for the elderly. There is no such thing as infatuation with youth. And I'm beginning to be on the receiving end of that respect for the elderly, so I can, from personal experience, attest to that is very true. In the West, we depersonalize research. Anyone qualified can weigh in on a discussion, critique, and make a contribution. The more senior Moroccan scholars present at the workshop felt greatly disturbed, offended and discouraged or disrespected by having young emerging scholars publicly critique their work. They perceived this as arrogant and ultimately as neo-colonial. Another challenge, for example, was when one young Moroccan scholar used as a scholarly reference for her work the Quran. And when one of the Western scholars cautioned against using a religious document or a document that is based on faith as a scholarly resource, that one might have to be careful about that. Then a discussion ensued if a perceived non-believer had the right to critique the use of a sacred book in a scholarly text. So there was at some point quite some tension between the different cultural perspectives brought to the workshop. We had the very good fortune to have a very senior Western scholar amongst us who has spoken here several, at least once, if not more, uh, Michael Perron. He's one of the world's foremost experts on Amazigh Berber cultures. He managed to diffuse much of the tension with his humor As I said, he's a very senior and elderly gentleman. And he came out very honestly and said, I have to read what he said. The lens of gender was new to him. He had not worked on gender before. And so he said, uh, my contribution was torpedoed like a submarine in World War II. I was told that I had to genderize my paper if I want to bring my damaged submarine back to the surface. So he managed to uh, diffuse some of the tension that was present there at the workshop. After the workshop ended, Nadia and I went about looking through all the contributions to see which which, uh, papers could be turned into a chapter in the book. And then the task fell upon us once we've decided that we had to inform some of the colleagues that their papers were not selected, which is, of course, or can be quite hurtful. So we had to deal again with some tension of having to inform some fairly senior scholars that their presentations were not going to be included in the book. We then came up with the idea of pairing authors, younger Moroccan scholars with a Western scholar or a more senior scholar, to allow for maximum exposure of younger North African scholars to have their work published in one of the world's premier publishing houses. Then, once we had the manuscript put together and submitted it to Cambridge University Press, after excruciating blind review, the review came back and said, these two chapters need to go. They don't meet our standards. So then Nadia and I again had to inform some colleagues who by then had extensively rewritten their papers, revised their papers, done additional research that, after all, their contribution would not be included. So what we found is that it takes a lot of tact, respect, and finesse to be the bearer of, if you will, continuously bad news to people with whom you have to continue to work together. Editing a book is a grueling and time-consuming effort. In fact, I would say it's a lot more effort than a monograph and it either breaks or makes relationships. I'm really happy to say that in the case of this book, we started out as professional colleagues and most of us ended up as friends. And apart from having the publication, I consider that a very important contribution to social change that we made within our own group rather than just in the output that you can read. As a matter of fact, Transformation of human relationships is also one of the major findings of our book. When we think of social change, we very often focus on the earth-shattering events like the Arab uprisings or regime change. And we found that the most sustained or enduring change takes place in human relationships, which are not easily captured in matrices or in quantitative figures and numbers. So some of the most sustained change is rarely focused on and, as a result, even more rarely captured. For example, we found that women's rights associations, human rights associations, don't function in a vacuum. They are embedded in the culture in which they operate. So when a human rights association or women's rights association works inside Morocco, for example it replicates the same authoritarian, hierarchical, patriarchal, or in the case of a women's association, matriarchal, top-down organizational structure that the larger society functions in. So what we focused on is the changes that happen within the association when they transform the way they function from a very rigid top-down to having a more open democratic system within their association. And we found that that is change that is not captured, but ultimately just as important as the changes for which they advocate externally. Another example would be in our chapters on migration. We focused on something that is not conventionally looked at when you look at social change, and that is funeral practices and end of life care. They are studied in anthropological research, but not as signifiers of social change. But what we found was that when migrant communities, in in the case of the chapters in this book, in the Netherlands and Belgium, change their funeral practices, this reverberates back home to their villages of origin. Everybody dies. So everybody has an experience with a loved one who passed away. It's something that every human being experiences. And it is probably the most authentic and rawest moment in everybody's life. And a moment when you're not thinking about conventions or norms or what should or should not happen, but when your heart tells you exactly what you want right now and what you need to happen. So when migrant women in the Netherlands, for example, insisted that they wanted to be present at the funeral of their child, at the funeral of their husbands, then that change traveled back to the village of their origin. And this was even more pronounced in cases where the body was repatriated and buried in Morocco. And the way these women came about insisting on being present at those funerals was because they observed other Muslim communities in the Netherlands and found that their Indonesian or Malaysian co-religionists did attend the funeral. So they understood the prohibition against women attending funerals is not a religious prohibition, but a cultural convention. And cultures can change. So once a woman broke through that major barrier of attending a funeral, her relationships with the men in the village or in her entourage, in her community, changed as a result. The same goes for end-of-life care. And I don't want to go into details with end-of-life care. Who makes the decision at end-of-life care? Is it the husband or the brother or the patient herself? And when the patient herself makes the decision, at that last moment in her life, she's going through a significant change. And the people she is related to experience that change. So... One of the focuses of the book, or one of the things that we were trying to capture in this book, is that when human relationships are transformed, they are not capturable by conventional research methods, but they are often more significant changes than when focusing on changes that can very easily be measured in numbers and figures. And Nadia, I think, will now explain a little bit more the categories that we use to capture these various types of changes. And then Iman will talk about one that she found in her particular chapter. So thank you very much. And I look forward to the question and answering session.
2: Well,
3: good afternoon, everybody. And first of all, many thanks to you, Michael, for having made this possible. It's really nice to be back here. And many thanks for Kaya. she is not here at the moment for organizing all this. That's much appreciated. And of course to Doris, who asked me to become part of the uh, editing process of this book, and of which you have heard uh, a little. So, either you shut up and you are humiliated, or you do what I'm doing. You scream. Yeah? Fatima Marnissi, 1994. The 1st of December 2015 was a very cold day in Morocco, and Al-Hawain University in the town of Ifran in the Middle Atlas Mountains was buried in snow, and Dora's and I, we had great difficulties reaching our offices, and there was no snow in Rabat, the capital city, a few hours away from Ifran on the Atlantic coast, but there it was cold too. And on that day, a large crowd followed the casket, carrying a woman to her last resting place. And that woman was Fatima Mernissi. You might know her. She was an exceptional woman in many ways. She was a sociologist by training, and she was one of the most famous, if not the the most famous, uh, Moroccan feminists. And she was a founder of Islamic feminism in Morocco. And she urged Muslim women to no longer shut up, but scream instead. She screamed many times during her own lifetime. But what made her really exceptional was that she even screamed during her own funeral. Wow. The crowd following her casket was a very unusual crowd. So there were many public figures. There were two advisors of the king, ministers, uh, writers, poems. Even the president of Morocco's uh, Islamist movement was there. But what made this funeral procession even more unusual was the large presence of women. And as you heard, usually in Morocco, the burial of a last one is a gender segregated event where only men walk the coving to the graveyard. But this time, however, many women honored Fatima Mernissi's last wish and by attending her burial in large numbers. Interestingly, however, is the fact that a significant number of Moroccan women had already started challenging the gender-segregated event of burial rituals long before Fatima Mernissi did. So as Doris explained, through their migration to Western Europe, they had come into contact with with Muslims from other countries, but also Muslims from different denominations. And they had found out that the gender segregation was not always present in these women's lives. And so in our book, it's researcher Khadija Uqmani, she gives these women a voice. And in her research, she focuses on Dutch and Belgium women from Moroccan descent who challenge these conventions. So for example, she describes how a Dutch Moroccan woman, how she refuses to obey her uncle. So her father had just died, and the father was in the ambulance, and he had to be transported to the cemetery to be washed and to be prepared for burial. And the uncle forbade her to, to stay in the ambulance. And she just refused to get out of the ambulance. And she stayed with her father all the way to the cemetery. And so instead of being left behind, it was the uncle who had to stay behind. And this time it was he who was screaming. Certainly the purpose of our book was to give this woman and other women a voice. But we aimed at doing more than that. So the anecdotes of Mernissi and the woman in the ambulance, they raise a very significant question, namely, what is social change? And how does it happen, or not? Okay, so social change happens at many levels, and our aim was to present a more complete picture of social change in North Africa, and through the very detailed micro-level and empirical research of most authors in our book, we were unable to unearth four categories of social change. And this is the first one. Social changes such as the one embodied in the figure of the Dutch Moroccan woman in the ambulance, they are generated through what Asif Bayat calls social non-movements. Yeah, so as you can read, these are the collective collective actions of non-collective actors. They embody shared practices of large numbers of ordinary people whose fragmented but similar activities trigger much social change. So these actions are contentious because the people who do them, they usually know that what they are doing is deviating from social conventions or is at the expense of the rich, the powerful, etc. But their actions, and that's very important, are not collectively organized. So, to give you a few examples, in uh, one of the chapters in our books deals with migrations, migrants from West Central Africa who come to Morocco. The chapter is written by Carla McCandars, and because of their individual actions of crossing an international border in an illegal way, they forced the Moroccan government to come up with legislation. Because it's not just one individual who does it. There are many. So that's the collective action, but it's not planned. And the work of Rukaya Wasleti, she focuses on end-of-life care in, in the Netherlands by Moroccan women. These women and men, because in her chapter she focuses on men too they challenge understandings of what good care is. Yeah? Who defines what good care is? Is it the medical doctor who wants to relieve pain at any costs, Or is it the patient him or herself? Or the family members of the patients? And what do you do when family members cannot agree on what to do or on what good care is? And Khadija Utmani who focuses on the burial rituals in a Western European country, she she wants us to also look how that reverberates back to the country of origin. So in Morocco, where women women still cannot attend the burials of their beloved ones, how does this have an impact? The second category we focus on are the non-contentious social changes. And I will not say too much about it, because Iman will talk about this in a minute. But the thing is, in opposition to the first category, they are usually non-contentious. Although, I must say, it also depends on the point of view of the stakeholder. What is contentious to one person might not be contentious to the other person. So that also means that social change is not something that you can easily grasp they are also not collectively organized. And as we will see, Imam will focus on the example of poorly educated mothers whose religiosity has an impact on the opportunities for their daughters to follow an education. And the same applies to minor marriages. That's a a subject I've been working on for some time now. Social change with regard to minor marriage, what does that mean? Does it mean that the number of minor marriages is reduced only? And when that does not happen, does it mean that we talk about a non-change? Which is the third category we focus on? So, non-changes include changes that look good on the surface. So, that can, for example, be the fact that the Moroccan government in 2004 introduced new legislation in the field of family law saying that the marital age was to be raised from 15 to 18 for both boys and girls. That looks good on the surface, depending on your point of view, again. Yeah, but judges were also given the possibility to allow for exceptions in well substantiated cases. So, when it appears then in the years that follow that 90% of the requests for minor marriage were granted, does that mean that we can speak of a non change? So, did the expected change actually occur? And another example in our book is uh, a chapter on domestic shelters for abused women. They were established, and that looks very good, because women have a place to go to. And it was also supposed to be a place where they could learn to be independent from the abusive household they were coming from, and to be independent in Moroccan society. But on the basis of very detailed empirical research of one of our authors, it appeared that actually the dependency was re-established. Often these women went back to the abusive households they were coming from, or they were not taught to be independent and earn their own incomes. And this brings us to the fourth category we focus on, and that's the contentious social action, and that's usually the social change people are most familiar with. It's contentious and it's organized. <laughs> And, for example, Fatima Mernissi, she wanted to change the existing interpretations of the sources of Islamic law, most notably the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And she wanted women to read these sources themselves and come up with their own understanding of what Islamic law was teaching them. And in our book Doris Gray and Habiba Boumlik, they analyze these organized changes to religious authority and how this re-reading of the religious texts by women led to new interpretations of religion-based law. And in my own chapter on divorce in Egypt, I also show how the secular women's movement in Egypt, how they organized social change, culminating in the introduction of a divorce law in 2000 that gave Egyptian Muslim women the right to divorce from their husbands without the need to show cause in court and without the need to have uh, permission from their husbands. These are clear examples of contentious social (laughs) action because the changes uh, or the introduction of the law provoked a lot of uh, controversy in society. And I would like to end here. This is a picture I took in the Middle Atlas Mountains. It's a road that clearly leads into a very remote area. But we would be wrong in assuming that social change always goes in one direction. So from the capital, Rabat for example, or Casablanca, all the way along the road to these remote villages. Because sometimes social change moves the other way around, and it originates in the rural areas. And this is exemplified by one chapter in our book by Yasmin Berriyane. She shows that the collective actions of a group of rural women provoked a lot of change. So these women were very upset by the fact that the selling of collective lands, that most of the money did only go to a few elderly males while they had worked the land. So they did not receive what they considered to be their share. And so they opposed this practice in their own communities, but they also wanted to organize some actions that would have an impact in society broadly. So they went all the way to rebut, and they demonstrated in front of the parliament, and they approached the civil society organizations. They also went to the women's rights organizations, and they asked them to collaborate with them to make it bigger to allow for social change on a great scale. And they succeeded in that. Because nowadays, part of the revenues of the selling of collective land goes to women too. And they even had to change national legislation to make that possible. I'm not saying that this is a social change, that it happened, and that there is nothing you could research about that because you still need very detailed empirical research to see what is actually happening on the ground. How does that process work? And that applies to all categories of social change we detected, yeah? One should always go, do the empirical work, and see what really happens in the villages or on the ground. Like with the issue of minor marriages, the fact that judges are uh, granting these requests, what does that mean? Why are they doing that? Are they perhaps working towards social change as well? But do they have a different understanding of social change? So while some women's organizations might say that it was actually a non-change, the judges might say that what they were doing was to make sure that In the case of minor marriage, at least the marriage would be registered. And at least the affiliation of the children to be born would be clear. So these children would not be bastards. And if they would not issue (coughs) the permission, these people would marry anyway, but informally. So we always have to be very careful uh, when we say that social change happened or that it did not happen. And that's the main contribution I think we wanted to make in the book. Thank you for your attention on this very nice, warm day and for you being here in this rather chilly room. And I look forward to your you know, to your feedback and to hearing more about your questions and, and, and suggestions.
2: So, thank you. Okay, good afternoon, everyone. I also would like to start by thanking Doris and Nadia for inviting me to the workshop and then inviting me to contribute to this great book. And thank you, Michael, for inviting us today. So, I will, I will talk about my own contribution to the book So, my chapter is entitled, American Mothers' Religiosity, Impact on Daughter's Education. So, in this chapter, I look at intra-household decision-making processes. I want to understand what triggers the involvement of women in decision within the household, and especially decision concerning daughter's education, girl's education. And when it comes to intra-household decision-making processes, if you look at the literature on household economics, I'm an economist, usually the involvement of uh, women in decision is explained by their bargaining power, or the relative bargaining power of spouses. And in order to understand the bargaining power, so bargaining power is influenced by what we call in economics the fallback position. And the fallback position is how well off the woman will be on her own. And this fallback position is impacted by a series of factors. So you have economic factors, for example, the relative wage of spouses, the opportunity on the job market for each spouse, education, for example. And you have non-economic factors like laws, Like, for example, marriage law, uh, divorce law, custody law. You have family support that can matter as well. You have social norms. So whether divorce is stigmatized in society or not, for example. And in my analysis, I included all those factors. Not all of them, but uh, most of them that are recognized as being important in the literature. But I focused my analysis on what I call a non-conventional factor. And I decided to look at the religiosity of mothers. And see whether religiosity of mothers can play a role in the involvement of women in decision making within household. And so my first question is what triggers mothers' involvement in decisions? And for that I look at all the factors recognizing literature plus my non-conventional factor. And then uh, I want to see whether religiosity of the mothers play a specific role in intra-household decision making. So first, why why I am interested in the involvement of mothers in decision? So if you look at the economics literature on that question, there is some kind of consensus that when mothers participate in decision, it has non-neutral effect. And very often it has positive effect on children's health and children education. And if I look at my, at my own database, what I observed is that when mothers participate in education decision concerning their daughters, it appears that girls are more likely to stay at school in urban areas and are more likely to enroll in primary school in rural areas. So the involvement of women in decision seems to have a positive impact on school enrollment. So it's a positive thing to have women involved in decision, apparently. And now we want to understand why, uh, what are the factors that will trigger that involvement. So my empirical question is, are more religious mothers more likely to participate in the final decision concerning daughter's education? And then I want to look at the specificities of the Moroccan context in order to understand my empirical results. And my conjecture is that in the Moroccan context, there is an influential religious movement that can be the underlying factors that can explain at the same time investment in religion, and involvement of mothers in decisions within the household, and especially decisions concerning education of children, and especially education of girls. So I, my conjecture is that religion can have an impact on values of the parents, um, attitudes and decisions, as education can have. So religion can have the same type of impact as education on parental values, but the kind of influence will depend on the perception that religious people have of the involvement of women in decisions within the household and the perception that they will have about children's education and especially education of girls. And those perceptions can be influenced by religious authorities or religious movements. So I want to see whether it's the case in Morocco. Okay? Okay. Is it clear for everyone, any question? Okay. So how did I do that? So I collected data, I uh, actually used a database that I collected during my PhD uh, research. So my PhD was not focused on that question, but my questionnaire was very large, so I could continue to use my data after the PhD. So I collected data in three different regions of Morocco, in the Tétouan Tangier region, in the Casablanca region, and then in the Wurzhat Ro- province. And I interviewed in total 542 individuals, but only 283 individuals were married. And in each family, I interviewed either the wife or the husband, and the choice was completely random. Okay? So what do I want to explain? I want to explain the involvement of women in decision concerning the education of girls. So my dependent variable, so what I want to explain, is a binary variable that will take var- uh, the value one if the mother participated in the final decision concerning girls' education, and zero otherwise. And in my database, I observed that 55.6% of the mothers are reported to be involved in decision. So I have quite a lot of variance, actually. So this is what I want to explain. I want to explain involvement of mothers in decision. And my key explanatory variable is the religiosity of mothers. So how do I proxy religiosity of mothers? So I proxy religiosity of mothers by the intensity of religious practice. And how did I measure the intensity of religious practice? I asked a series of questions about uh, religious practices. So I asked people whether they obey the practice or not. And uh, uh, if it was yes, I asked them uh, questions about the frequency of this practice. So I combined the responses to those two questions in order to construct an index measuring the intensity of religious practice in a multidimensional way. So it's not based only on one or two practices. I included a lot of practices. I don't have a lot of time to go into detail of the construction of this index, but if you have questions, I'm happy to come back to this later on. So this was my main explanatory variable Another variable of interest for uh, this book chapter was the education of the mothers. So um, as I told you at the beginning, I, I included a lot of other factors that are recognized as important factors in this literature. Um, but in this book cha- chapter, I focused on the role of education, and the role of religiosity. And what I want to test is whether religiosity and education are complementing each other whether there is some kinds of complementarity between religiosity and education, whether they reinforce each other when it comes to the explanation of the involvement of mothers in decisions, or whether they are substitutes, whether one can play the same role as the other when one of them is missing, okay? So I want to see whether there is some uh, complementarity or some uh, substitution between those two factors. So what are my main results? So the main results are that education matters. So the the education has a positive impact on on the involvement of mothers in decision. So the more educated is the mother, the more likely the mother will participate in decision concerning the education of her daughters. Then I have a positive and uh, statistically significant correlation between the intensity of religious practice and the likelihood of the participation of women in decisions. So the more religious is the mother, the more likely she will participate in decisions. But these results is triggered by women who are poorly educated. What do I mean by poorly educated? Women who did not go to school at all, uh, did not go to school, or women who uh, only had a few years of formal education. So women who did not achieve primary education. So if I look at those women who, who are poorly educated, there is a positive correlation between the intensity of religious practice and the involvement in decisions. But if I look at women who are highly educated, there is no effect, no impact of religiosity. So when women are educated, what matters is their level of education. So if they are educated, they will participate, they are more likely to participate in decisions. If they are poorly educated, the more religious they are, the more likely they will participate in decisions concerning the education of their daughters. So it seems that there is some kind of substitution effect between the two factors. So religion acts as a compensating factor for the lack of education, in a sense. It's not perfectly compensating the, the lack of education, but there is some compensation effect. Okay, so this is my main results. Now I want to understand why is the case. So what is a possible explanation for these empirical results? And for that, I focus on the, as I told you at the beginning, I focus on the Moroccan context. And I was particularly interested in influential religious movement, which is Al-Had uh, al-Wal-Ihsan, and especially the women section of these movement. So it's a movement that has been created in the 70s by a school teacher um, from the 80s with the introduction of uh, very liberal policies in in Morocco. The main concern of the movement was social justice. So they were very active on the ground, providing goods and services, helping people, and acting as a kind of substitute to the state uh, on the ground. And the movement is inspired by Sufism. So it's a movement that follows a bottom-up approach, And they consider that the uh, transformation of society is possible if we start by transforming people. Uh, So we should uh, give priority to the inner change of the people in order to change society. And the main purpose is to reach spiritual awakening and true education. So they insist on the importance of education. My interest was more on the women's section because I thought that this section is more likely to reach women And I met with several members of the women's section, so members with position of important responsibility, with important position of responsibility, and also with local activists. From those discussions that I had with members of the women's section, there are some main topics that emerged. So it seems that um, first they are very active in order to transform society. And rich gender justice. So they always talk about gender justice, they don't talk about gender equality. But this concept is not clearly defined. So for example, they are very keen for egalitarian involvement of uh, men and women in family matters. They would be uh, favorable to uh, the involvement of women in the public sphere, but they will not directly talk about equality in rights between men and women, and they will not directly talk about equality in terms of responsibility between men and women. So they prefer this concept that is not clearly defined of gender justice with respect to gender equality. Then they consider that emancipation of women can only come through education, that education is very important, and that actually education is a religious duty. And they consider that uh, women should educate themselves, educate their children, and that can play an important role in society through the role that they can play in the private sphere, but also through the role that they can play in the public sphere. And I looked at three particular projects of approaches that seemed to be important by the time uh, I had those interviews. It was in 2014. The first project is to try to to reinterpret uh, religious prescriptions because they consider that there is a human-biased interpretation of religious prescription, that actually those prescriptions, those interpretations were made uh, especially by men, and that the messages that were conveyed by those men reinforce patriarchy and that patriarchy is an obstacle to the advancement of women's rights. And they consider that women should be involved in the debate in order to uh, reread uh, the sacred text, and in order to be involved in the debate uh, and to be credible, they should be highly educated. So education is very important. So in terms of education, they were acting uh, at a different level. So they were acting at the level of the, the movement. So they encourage women members of the movement to pursue their education through uh, what they call the Halimet Project. So any member of the movement was encouraged to go beyond uh, her actual level of education. Uh, but they were also acting on the ground and having meetings with women who are poorly educated and women from poor socioeconomic background. And they were meeting with those women Uh, talking about women's rights, having discussion about the importance of education, and persuading them that actually they should invest, if not in their own education, they should invest in the education of their children. And the message that they convey to those women is that actually education is a religious duty. And if someone does not educate himself or herself, and does not educate her children, uh, this person will be actually considered as failing in her commitment to God. So they were using some kind of um, religious argument in order to persuade people that rel- education is very important. And they were really insisting on the um, spir- spiritual benefits of investing in education. They were also talking about social benefits But for example, economic incentive and economic benefit were not their primarily argument. I will maybe uh, skip the quotes because probably we don't have time. A last project that I I found interesting is the project that they called Sisters for Eternity. So those were all female gatherings led by women members of the movement. Those gatherings were very successful So they were initially uh, targeting the members of the women's section only. But they were so successful that they decided to extend the project to women who are not necessarily members of the movement. So any women who was interested in the philosophy of the movement could take place in those gatherings. So they decided to train sisters, so women members of the movement, who, who have good communication skills, in order to be in charge and to lead those gatherings everywhere in the country. And during those gatherings, uh, they were talking about women enlightenment, which means that women should reach a certain level of consciousness and should improve women agency. And they consider that women in Morocco have a self-confidence and self-esteem issue, and that it's not easy to increase uh, women agency. And one way to do it is by using some religious argument. And saying to women, if actually you are able to, if you take action, you are able to change your situation and in turn change society. And actually, if you take action and you make something, you will get closer to God. So the the action that you will undertake will be valued by God. So they were once again uh, insisting on the spiritual benefit of taking action and trying to change their own situation and in turn changing society. So once again education was central to those gatherings. And they also insisted a lot during those gatherings on the, the need to um, reinterpret religious prescription. And they were talking a lot about history of Islam and and talking about a lot about um, the fact that the, the the dominant interpretation of religious prescription was made by men and it was, by consequence, um, biased. So, once again, the the most important element of their discourse was the importance of education and the need of a reinterpretation of religious prescription, and that education was important in order to achieve that goal. Okay, so maybe I will just conclude. So, what I found are... I found a positive and significant correlation between the intensity of religious practice of mothers and the participation in decision. And this is uh, essentially true for mothers who are non-educated, who have only a few years of formal education. So I argue that in the Moroccan context, religion may have played a similar role as education uh, regarding consciousness raising about the importance of children's education and regarding self-valuation of women about what they can achieve. And the positive social message on the importance of education and the role of women in society, as it is conveyed by the women's section, uh, of uh, uh, may have played a very important role in the Moroccan context. So what emerged from this research is that the identification of a positive social message with religious beliefs can actually lead to a change in attitude in decision and can lead to positive attitude concerning investment in the education of children and especially in the education of girls. So um, a question to investigate for future research will be to which extent the interaction between religious identity and a positive social discourse uh, that emphasize the role of women can influence uh, the aspiration of women, can influence their their self-perception and their capacity to to aspire and their attitudes. This is one point that emerged from this research, and the second point that emerged from this research is that under some circumstances, a uh, socially conservative movement can have some progressive development related effects. And, and actually, it's not, uh, there are some other evidence of that results in other contexts. And I will stop here, I think. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Doris. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you, Iman. I think all three of those presentations hopefully give you a flavour of the book and look at what the objectives of the book have achieved. And certainly, from having been involved in the workshop and having read large parts of the book, I think the two things that stand out from the book for me, and I think they've, they've come over the presentation, is firstly that the, the chapters were based on really in-depth on the ground research with people spending a lot of time and very familiar with the case studies. Doris referred to the case of Michael Peyron, who is, as you mentioned, one of the foremost authorities of the Amazigh communities of Middle Atlas, and actually wrote down family practices that nobody had written down, really, about what was happening in the rural communities of Middle Atlas. So remarkable things like that. I think the second important thing about the volume, which came out here, is looking in a, a rather different way of what social change actually means. And I think they're fairly standard ways of looking looking at how change occurs and why it occurs in a a rather different way. I certainly learned a lot, and we had to think in different ways about different types of social change, what it meant particularly to women. We've got a taste of that. Thank you.